Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Grant Wall, and welcome to the Planet Football Podcast, where I go in-depth with the most intriguing people in the world of soccer. In this episode, I'm joined by Jonathan Liu, the UK-based chief sports writer for The Independent, who I think is one of the best sports writers working in English today. I think you'll like this conversation. Just a quick reminder, it's a huge help if you subscribe to, rate, and review the podcast. It helps people find us. Onward! Our guest today is Jonathan Liu, the chief sports writer for The Independent in the UK. He is one of the world's premier sports writers, covering an array of sports, especially soccer and cricket. Jonathan, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Quite an intro. Thank you very much for that. Well, that's how I feel, and I think a lot of people feel that way uh, about your work. Uh, It's something where I think... One of the wonderful things about Twitter, and there's certainly some some negative things, but one of the wonderful things about Twitter is it's exposed me on a regular basis to great writing, great journalists around the world that I'm able to read on a, on a more regular basis. So uh, I just said something positive about Twitter. <laughs> There's always a time. There's always a time and a place. I wanted to have you on the podcast because I I find so often that your columns and stories uh, after a big game or on other occasions are the ones that are the most perceptive and thought-provoking that I read. Uh, And I want to start with what seems like a pretty simple question. What are you asked to do for your job? It seems like sort of a variety of things. Yeah. uh, Gosh, I suppose the the short answer to that is is very little. Uh, One of the... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> One of the good things about about working at the, at the Independent, it's, it's quite a young team and uh, quite a small team as well, is that uh, we as writers get quite a lot of latitude to, to to sort of not cover what we want necessarily, but pick out the angles and the stories and, and the characters and the, and the themes that, that appeal to us, um, which I, I think is, is quite rare, certainly in, in sort of traditional English newspaper journalism. Um, so, so, yeah, I mean... Uh, an example: I went to Fulham against Huddersfield a few a few weeks ago, and, and you know found something reasonably interesting to to say about uh, what quite a dull game. Um, so 
that's that's part of what I do. Uh, I also I, I cover quite a lot of you know diary stuff as we call it. You know, that's press conferences and, and matches, and uh, as well as football, I do mainly cricket, uh, but you know, a variety of other things as uh, as they pop up. I think one of the challenges, and we'll get into a little bit about the compare and contrast between uh, UK writing and sports and uh, maybe in the US, but one thing I do find that's similar, I think, in both countries is that there is this co- sort of hamster wheel trend in uh, in modern media where you're being asked to write so much about a lot of the same things that other journalists are writing about. Um, and with so many platforms these days, um, it's maybe a challenge at times to find something new and interesting to say. How do you approach that? Yeah, I mean, it's a good point, actually, that the certainly uh, as, a, as a website, we're kind of driven by what people want to read. And so if you really wanted to, you could just write about Arsenal, Manchester United, Chelsea, Liverpool, ad infinitum uh, and, you know, make a fairly good living out of it. And lots of people do. Um Personally, I've you kind of I find you kind of run out of things interesting things to to say about you know about a lot of these themes after a while. I mean, I I was kind of delighted when Jose Mourinho got sacked at Manchester United because I have no new thoughts about Jose Mourinho anymore. <laughs> it's, it's just good for him to sort of go away for a couple of years so, so I can I can I can think about something else I want to say about him. Um, but equally, the other side of this is that because so many websites and, and outlets. Are focusing so heavily on what we, you know, what we would call the big traffic clubs, and I'd, I'd include Real Madrid and Barcelona in that as well. There are so many other stories and themes in football that are not getting enough coverage, and so while there is, you know, while while, while it's, I guess that hamster wheel trend is is quite prevalent. If you know where to look and, and you have a little bit of, um, I don't know, a bit of an intrepid spirit, it's actually easier these days to find stories that are undercovered because uh, there's so much out there that's just kind of in the shadows. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as uh, simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly focus pops or lolly mellow pops for kids. And for parents, try three new brainy chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Yeah. Could you mention a couple of examples of maybe stories you've done in recent months that you felt good about finding a story that was undercovered? Yeah. I mean, the FA Cup third round, which uh, we just had in, 
uh, in England in the sort of first week of January. It's a it's a great one. I mean, the FA Cup's always brilliant for for bringing smaller clubs uh, and sort of lower league teams into the you know into the spotlight just for for, for a while. And and so that, I mean, there are, there are so many stories in the in the FA Cup third round. If you if you know if you want to look for them. A lot of them were very well covered. I, I personally, I went up to to Grimsby Town, who are a team in League Two, the fourth tier, and it's right up on the on the east coast of, of England. Uh, I think it's in Lincolnshire, just um, you know, right on the North Sea. It's pretty remote. You would know you have no reason to go to Grimsby unless you were going to Grimsby. Uh, but they, they have they have a very interesting uh, a very interesting manager called Michael Jolly, who has no uh, formal playing experience. He was a a, a, a bond trader actually he, he left university and, and he went to cambridge university which is rare enough in itself became a bond trader worked for hsbc in new york he was in new york on the day of the uh, the 9 11 attacks uh came back to england started uh, training for his coaching badges and, and sort of worked his way into a football league job really quite by quite, quite an unconventional route um so you know those are the sort of stories that you maybe won't read every week but Something like the FA Cup third round is a really good opportunity to to tell those sorts of stories and, and meet these kind of people and and, and frankly um, you know go to Grimsby, which is something I never thought I'd do. <laughs> there does seem to be sort of a, a basic difference between sports writing in the U.S. and in England, at least from my perspective, in the sense that here in the U.S. it's often more access driven, based on quotes from the athletes. And my sense is in England, a match report is at least seen as something more like. I don't know, a theater review. Am I oversimplifying this? No, I think, I think that's, uh, you know, that, that's quite accurate. The, the locker room access that, that you guys get in the US, which I, I suppose is, is just part of the sporting culture there and always has been, it really doesn't exist here, certainly not anymore. Uh, maybe 20 or 30 years ago, you would be able to, you know, if you were covering a, a big club, even like Manchester United, you'd be able to go into the car park and have a chat with the player and the managers. But uh, that just doesn't happen anymore. Um, and so when you are writing about you know, a match, uh, it's, it, yeah, it's, it's very much being informed by, by what you see rather than, than who you talk to. Now, the, the, the best journalists will, will have, a, I guess, a mixture of, of insight, uh, you know, learned knowledge and, and good contacts. Um, but, I mean, it's interesting when you, you go to Jurgen Klopp press conference, for example, and you're asking him questions, and it's he does, it's almost as if he doesn't really want to engage with them. He'll often say something like, "Well, you saw the match. You write about it. Write what you want. Write, well, what, are you, what are you asking me for? Form your own opinions." And and I think that's uh, that's becoming you know more more prevalent. Like, what do you want to talk to me for? Leave me alone and, and form your own opinions, so I can freely ignore them. <laughs> it's yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of fascinating to me, and I'm sure you run into situations like I've run into before where. Uh, this happens uh, with some regularity where you're writing during a game um, sometimes. Like, I'll usually have to write something. If it's like I'm covering a U.S. national team game, I'll have my three quick thoughts at the final whistle, and I'll start writing in minute 70. And then there will be, like, a 90-second-minute goal. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and you have to completely change everything to the point where I wish I have, I should have kept all of the things I had written over the years, like ripping the U.S. for going out in the group stage of the, <laughs> the World Cup in 2010 before the, the injury time goal. Um, how often does that happen to you when you have to basically tear up something that you've been writing? Uh, fairly often. I, I suppose the, you know, over time, you, you kind of learn not to hedge your bets too much. But if you're if you're writing for like a 
you know, a print newspaper as I used to do at, at the Telegraph. You know, it's, it's unavoidable. The, the game often finishes at 10 p.m. The, the paper goes to print at 10, 10, 10, 15. So, so essentially you do have to file on the whistle. Alex Ferguson always used to, to kind of chide the, you know, the football writers after, um, after they won the European Cup in 99, scoring, scoring two goals in injury time against Bayern Munich. He used to, to, to talk the journalist saying um, he, he still has the first editions from, um, <laughs> from, that, from that game, which were essentially about 70 or 80%, you know, Manchester United so close, but yet so far. And then sort of two lines at the top, Manchester United won the, uh, the European Cup in thrilling circumstances. It does happen quite a lot. We call them intro killers uh, in the business, late goals. Uh, I mean, the nightmare is when you get a late goal and then another late goal for the other, for the other side. Um, but yeah, it happens. It happens a lot more than uh, it happens a lot more than we'd like. But I suppose w- one of the skills is is kind of writing during the game in a way that could go either way. So mm. you know, you, you, you're coming up with interesting thoughts on the game that aren't necessarily contingent on the result. That's something I, I think you learn over time. Now you talked a little bit about undercovered stories that you like to latch on to. There's also stories that are not undercover, but are still really important and capture the attention of people around the world. And you're on the ground in England for one of the great running stories we've seen in recent years, Liverpool's pursuit of its first league title in 29 years. What do you think are some of the most intriguing aspects of that story? And how are you approaching covering a a team that's getting covered a ton? Yeah, uh, I mean, it's it's an interesting question because, I mean, the way that social media works and, and the news cycle, you are you're kind of bombarded with opinions. It's a, it's like an endless waterfall of takes and, and counter takes and, and revisionism. And and I think one of the one of the most interesting themes about this this title race is for a lot of neutrals. Who who should we be rooting for? That's something you, you never used to get in football journalism. The, the, this this kind of veneer of impartiality was was pretty much uh, the industry standard. Now with with fan blogs, with fans on Twitter, with message boards, with journalists' own prejudices being scrutinised because we're all fans of a club, whoever it is, um, we, we're seeing a, a lot more. We're seeing partisanship, I think, brought more more into the story. And so you know, there's been a long kind of long running debate in the last. Sort of few weeks, few months about who should who should we want to win the title? Uh, I think Henry Winter wrote something for the Times that all neutrals should be should be rooting for Liverpool because they are run in the way that a club should be run with a, a ties to its community and and what have you, and, and they play football football in the right way, and they, they and you know that obviously created a very strong reaction because uh, mainly from Manchester City fans who who think that you know the way their club is you know the story that you know the journey they've been on over the last 20 years is is you know pretty remarkable in itself so i think that's one of them that's one of the most interesting themes that, that's come through i mean in terms of the in terms of you know, who's actually going to win it i mean who knows right toss a coin yeah it's fascinating to me because i've started to do tv in the u.s in recent years i've been at sports illustrated as a writer for a lot longer um but even on tv um i've read that nbc which shows the premier league games here in the states uh, is very specific with its talent about not ever saying we to describe a team in the Premier League. You know, you're not uh, one of them. Um, and, they, and they're very clear about that. When I've worked for Fox Sports uh, in television coverage, and, and maybe this is different because it's the World Cup and it's national teams, but um, they actually have no issue and sort of at times encourage 
the people at Fox Sports TV, the talent, to to speak in we terms. Uh, I, and I think our industry is sort of struggling with how to approach all of this. Yeah, and I, again, I think there's there's a slight sort of disparity between uh, the US and, and the UK in this. I think over in, in America, you guys have uh, the, the, the journalism culture is, is, I think, a lot more formalized uh, mm. in that. You, you guys are you guys are taught ethics uh, <laughs> and and so, but but also the, this idea of impartiality is, is kind of it's really embedded um whereas in this country that's like i said it's sort of eroding and huh. on 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 tv you will you, you will see pundits very frequently uh saying we you know you get paul Scholes or, or ian wright who will openly root for their clubs and huh. speak from the point of view of a fan of that club, which I guess essentially they are. And, you know, I suppose the argument in favour of that is everybody knows what their prejudices are. And you know, as long as they're open about it, you know, that, that's in a way more honest. But, yeah, that, that's that's very much the way things are going. That, uh, you know, it obviously came to a head during during the World Cup when, when Gareth Southgate, uh, the, the England manager, came out and said, does the media, should the, you know, does the media want to help the England team or not? And this... This created quite a rift between people who, who thought, well, no, the, the media's job is not to help the England team, it's to, to report the news impartially. And others who thought, well, our job is to serve the market and our market is England fans. So, you know, it's an interesting debate. It is. I mean, I always grew up with the uh, edict of no cheering in the press box. And I've even felt uncomfortable at times when on TV, I've had someone put a, a US scarf around me on air, you know, <laughs> and so it's, it's, it's an interesting one to negotiate. Um, Kind of moving to a different topic, but a really important one. Um, you've written really eloquently on the topic of racism in soccer over the years. Uh, I can think back to uh, your columns on on the Jamie Vardy incident a few years ago. Um, you wrote another column on racism in football in December after the Raheem Sterling Instagram post. And I don't want to embarrass you here, but I'm actually going to read from the column because I thought it was really well oh, done. No. Oh, no. Oh, here, here we go. You wrote, quote, you see, there's long been a fundamental problem with the racism debate in this country. A startling number of people don't really know what it is. Never suffered it. Never been affected by it. Never really examined it in any great detail. And thus laboring under the first misconception of racism, that it is essentially all about incidents, that it must consist of a single discrete act, that it has to be intentional. But more simply, there's an extremely high proportion of the population who believe that racism is simply stuff like shouting the N-word, putting a brick through a window, desecrating a Jewish cemetery, throwing bananas, and nothing else. Then you move on for the unenlightened, the idea that racism can be structural and endemic, subtle and unseen, unspoken or even unintentional is about as intelligible as calculus. For them, it's a binary thing. You're either a racist or you're not. Indeed, these days, especially in online discourse, you often see this dialectic weaponized by the reactionary right as a sort of absurdist distraction, end quote. What sort of response did you get to that column? Um mixed i'd say but there was i think broadly supportive uh i, I, I know it's, it's it's twitter and essentially you, you know we've you, we've curated our own twitter feed and our own personal brand so we only ever really hear the stuff that we want to hear anyway but i i was really encouraged by this whole episode uh and not not just the stuff that i wrote but stuff a lot, a lot of other people wrote and the debate that was being had in the media 
on, on TV and in newspapers. I think we're actually getting somewhere here. Uh, people, it, I think for Raheem Sterling to come out and talk about structural racism, which is like it's not a concept that is as easy to understand as kind of overt racist abuse, for him to sort of discuss that topic so eloquently, I think was an important step in in bringing that home to a lot of people. And I mean, I was writing about Raheem Sterling sort of two or three years ago when he moved from Liverpool to Manchester City. And a lot of the criticism he got for, you know, taking a, a, a larger contract, for moving to a different club, for holding Liverpool to ransom as, as it was, was was quite, it was quite racialized in tone. The, but because it wasn't, you know, an overt act, because it wasn't necessarily intentional, people didn't recognise it as such. So I, I think there, there has been a little bit of a breakthrough in the last two or three years. Again, it's, what, it's, it's a, another good thing about social media there are two good things about twitter on, on this uh, this podcast that it's exposed people to a broader range of, of views and i suppose the con- the discussion has moved on so many more stages than than it might have done in in a kind of a pre-internet age and i think that's really encouraging you know the sport of soccer football is getting bigger all the time here in the states and we've got plenty of our own racist history, racist present, uh, including connected to sports. Uh, But I do think there's still an element of people in the U.S. who are starting to follow European soccer, and that can be in England, that can be on other parts of, of the continent, and are stunned that in the year 2019, we still see bananas thrown at players in Europe uh, or outright racist chants or even after the Koulibaly situation uh, where he was uh, abused racially uh, the Napoli player Napoli fans thinking they were being supportive by dressing up in blackface Um, like what (laughs) for those Americans who are sort of seeing this and seeing sort of these overt things that we yeah we have our own stuff here in the US but you don't see that in US stadiums What's your take on on the the topic of racism in football at this point, and and where we're going with it? Yeah, I think I think part of that has to do with has to do with class slightly. I, I think uh, in most of Europe, in in most of I guess Latin America as well, um, football has traditionally been the sport of you know working people and you know the blue collar. Is it, is it all right to say blue collar? Is yeah. that problematic? No, that's uh, good. Yeah, it's, it's essentially been a blue collar sport with all the good and bad that comes with that. Uh, in in America, I mean, I, I'm, I guess I'm not an expert in, in kind of the demographics of US soccer, but I, I would imagine that if only you know if only soccer fans would have been allowed to vote in the presidential election, Trump would probably have come third behind Jill Stein, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, true. It's, it's I mean, it's a slightly different demographic and one that I think is probably more you know for, for want of a better word a little bit more woke um mm-hmm. and so yes it is going to be shocking for you know a lot of u.s fans to see bananas getting thrown and you know racist banners or, or kind of some, of some of the stuff that that happens in in russia um but i, th- I mean just to i mean to, to reiterate what I, what I said earlier i think it's, it's, it's good that we're having a conversation about it now the fact that uh you know far right you know racist politics uh is so prevalent throughout a lot of Europe is, you know, while awful, has brought the conversation 
into sports stadiums in a way that it might not have done otherwise. And so I'm, I'm essentially an optimist on this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I think that the, the, more we, the more we talk about these issues and the more, you know, for example, the Koulibaly issue, the, the more fans and administrators and players, uh, you know, everybody in the game is, is kind of, as long as there's something pushing back on that, I think that's, that's generally a positive thing. Um, I don't trust I don't trust FIFA to to deal with it at all. I think th- this is the sort of change that comes from you know a more kind of popular movement, whether that's mm-hmm. through social media or whether that's through fan movements or, or whatever. Um, but I, yeah, I am generally optimistic. Wanted well, to step back just a little bit here and ask you: You're a pretty young guy. What's your age? Uh, Thirty thirty three. A couple of months ago. Okay. So, um, yeah, you're a but, young but, guy. Uh, youth, youthful in terms of, you know, youthful in looks, I think. I still get ID'd now and again. <laughs> what was your pathway to becoming a sports journalist? Um, I was, uh, well, I went, to, I went to university. Uh, I went to Edinburgh University. And when I when I got to my fourth year, which is, we do four-year degrees in Scotland, uh, I sort of, you know, panicked a little bit. Uh, I wrote for the student newspaper, but I didn't really envisage becoming a sports writer because it was it was almost like saying i want to become an astronaut uh there there was there was something kind of distant and and unattainable about it um but you know the you know little steps were were all kind of logical in their own way i did some work experience at uh, the observer sport monthly which was like a great magazine that the observer used to run uh which was really good experience i did some some work experience at a cricket magazine and then i joined the telegraph's graduate scheme in 2008 and Mm -hmm. There, I sort of trained as a as a news journalist, got kind of the shorthand and media law and all the kind of basics. Um, and there just happened to be a vacancy on sport, and and nobody else on on my intake was was really that fussed about uh, fussed about sport. So that's kind of how it opened up. I mean, the I mean, I, I'm really optimistic about about sports writing generally. I think there's more great stuff out there than there's ever been. Mm-hmm. The the finances of the industry, I think, are a lot more worrying. That a lot of incredibly talented people aren't getting paid a huge amount and there is still far too many kind of entry routes to the industry that are based on contact or or some, sometimes blind luck and i guess in my case it was blind luck well i mean we have quite a few young journalists and aspiring journalists listening to this podcast would you have any useful pieces of advice for them and how to approach their job or any useful tricks of the trade yeah i mean I, I do get asked this this quite a lot, and I don't generally generally try and say something different every time um, because I think a lot of the a lot of the advice is is quite boring, but also quite you know it's it's also quite correct. You just have to keep keep writing and write and write and write until you feel like you know your craft and you know words and sentences and you know you know how 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 writing works as well as you possibly can, and I think. In a way, that's more important than getting to know your subject matter. I think I, I like to think that a, a, a good writer should be able to turn their, themselves to anything, um, and certainly, you know, covering a range of sports. That's a, it's, it's a kind of a handy surrogate for actually knowing stuff. Um, so that that would be one thing I would uh, I would suggest. But also, I think trying to trying to look at sometimes quite popular topics from a slightly different angle is is is, is a, a really good way of of trying to forge a career because if if you can see you know the angle or you know the player or the tactic or you know the, the little detail that 
other people don't spot. That's that's your unique value. There are so many people trying to get into the industry. And if you can stand out by offering some kind of, you know, whether it's great writing, whether it's great insight, uh, whether it's great contact, whether it's some, some sort of specific knowledge, um, that's really the way to stand out. And you kind of do have to stand out these days because it is, it is an incredibly competitive industry on both sides of the Atlantic, I think. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Now, one thing I wanted to ask you about was during the 2018 Baseball World Series, you flew all the way out to Los Angeles and wrote a terrific long piece, a column with an outsider's perspective on baseball. What were some of the things that stood out to you the most about that experience? Oh, well, yeah, that was, um, yeah, that was incredible. Uh, don't ask me who played. Uh, <laughs> it was, it, it, no, it was the Dodgers and it was the Dodgers and the, and the Red Sox, I think. Yes. Yes, that's right. That's right. Yes. Um, <laughs> well, I suppose, the, I mean, the interesting thing, I'm a, I'm a, like a massive, I'm a massive cricket fan. Uh, and obviously crick, cricket, is is the superior sport in every aspect so uh so I, I, was co- I was coming to baseball from from that kind of perspective but also slight slightly wary of doing that doing that outsider's piece mm-hmm. um you know oh look at that they have they have um you know they play songs you know they play take me out to the ballpark and they have big foam fingers and they eat hot dogs wow um <laughs> I, think, I think that could get slightly trite at times so what i i mean what I was really, really fascinated by, and I, this is obviously going to be second nature to any baseball fan out there, was just how hard it is to hit a baseball. Yeah, um, it's like this thing traveling at roughly the speed of sound uh, <laughs> that's kind of swinging through the air, and you have this tiny little. I mean, a cricket bat is, I think, three or four inches wide. It, I mean, certainly, it's certainly like wider than a, a baseball bat, and you, you get a lot more time to see it. Um, I mean, hitting baseball, it's just, it's, it's incredibly, it's, it's one of the hardest things in sport. Yeah. I think, I think that. And, uh, that's, that's really, that's really what impressed me. How these incredibly good guys, incredibly talented guys who have worked their way up, uh, the ladder and spent years of their lives hitting baseballs are still basically not going to hit it most of the time. That's, that's, that's really what stood out to me. Yeah, no, it's a terrific piece. I, I encourage everyone who's listening to to Google it and and read it. How did how different did reporting about American sports feel to you? Um, yeah, very different. I mean, I, I think I, I mean I did an, uh, an NFL game at, uh, at Twickenham in London a couple of years ago, and uh, I, I've yeah, but but I've, I've never really covered U.S. sport in the U.S. So. You, you have to get used to the different rhythms. I, I was very lucky to be at that. Well, lucky, I guess, is the word to be at that. You know, the, the marathon game was, it, was that game three? Oh, yeah. the one that went the one that went on for it never ended seven hours. Yeah, yeah it never it's ended. crazy. It never ended, and the, the 
the, the cadence of a sport is something that that takes a while to get used to. Uh, I mean, cricket, for example, has these incredibly concentrated micro moments of action. But essentially, you're sitting there for seven hours and you might not see anything interesting. Um, baseball seems to be quite quite similar to that in a way that you you have you really have to to watch and watch and watch before you see something worth seeing. But in, in a way that that just makes it so much more worth seeing, if that makes any sense. I mean, the, the rimshot joke is that you got to see the longest World Series game in history. And oh, he's a cricket writer um, <laughs> showing how, how much I know about cricket. Actually, my, my very brief story is, is that I lived in South Africa for a year in 2009 because my wife was working there and the Indian Premier League T20 had moved to South Africa that year after a terrorism incident yes, in yeah. India. And so we were living literally down the street from the cricket ground in Johannesburg. And one day I Googled Cricket Explained and read it and then fell in love with the Indian Premier League that season, subscribed to a specific cable channel for it and totally got into it. And for our listeners out there, T20 cricket is not test cricket. This is like T20 cricket is like sort of the length of a baseball game, basically. Yeah, three hours generally. Um, how do you cover cricket anyway, man? Like, or, <laughs> or, or at least the kind of cricket that takes so many hours and days to finish. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the I mean, it's one of the beauties of the game. I think now we're really talking about my uh, yeah what I want to talk about here. It's um, <laughs> one, one, one of the beauties of cricket is that you know you can get a, a three hour game or if you'd been in South Africa 70 years earlier in 1939, you'd, you would have seen the, the the legendary timeless test between England and South Africa, which went on for, I think, 10 or 11 days. Uh, they, they, and and they, they still didn't finish it. The, the English team, they literally had to stop the game because the English team had to get the boat home and they were going to miss it. Um, so it's, it's one of those, it's one of those games where, yes, you, you have to watch it for a long time because the, the important things don't necessarily reveal themselves at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I don't. You, you kind of have to. You watch how a bowler is is trying to figure out a batsman, and sometimes it'll take an hour. And the bowler will be bowling it outside off stump, and the batsman will leave it alone and leave it alone and leave it alone. And you think, well, this isn't very interesting. But if you if you think about it, what what he's actually trying to do, he's trying to test the batsman's patience. You look at where the fielders are. Uh, you look at what the ball's doing, whether it's moving off the straight or not, whether it's seeming or seeming or swinging, and there are all these tiny little micro duels that are contained within a game. And for me, the the key to to what sort of deciphering a game of cricket is to identify those little mini battles. I mean, they, they say that it's an individual sport within a team sport, and I think that's really true. It's it's very kind of mano a mano. Uh, at times and if you can identify those little moments i think that that's that's one of the big keys to to kind of understanding what i guess is a really esoteric game to to outsiders now how do you feel about 2020 cricket are you sort of a a purist and disdain or or do you like it no i think it's great i mean i one of the one of the greatest games i ever covered was was in uh in kolkata two or three years three years ago the the world 2020 final between the west indies and england uh, which is is definitely worth YouTubing if you if you've got the time. Uh, I th- it's definitely a different sort of it's a definitely a different sort of um, feel to it. I mean, we talked about cadence, and 
the whole point of 2020 is that there's, there's very little room to breathe. I was brought up on, on test cricket. I was, I was brought up watching England playing test cricket in the 90s or, or more accurately trying to play it, uh, which, which they didn't always do very well. Um, but yeah, I, th- I think there's a, there's a different feel to, to 2020 and, and that doesn't necessarily mean it's, it's a poorer game. Uh, the way that things like analytics and sports science have, have kind of transformed cricket would not have been possible without 2020 and, and the money that, that, that's come into it. Uh, there's some there's some really interesting things happening in terms of analysing analyzing kind of player performances and player matchups and, and you know the the techniques of the game that you know has really enriched cricket as a whole. Um, so yeah, I think it's I think it's a fantastic spectacle. Uh, whether it's and, and it's clearly the future of the game. Um, whether there is room in the future for kind of both both formats of cricket to to coexist. That's that's the more worrying question, I think. We're talking with Jonathan Liu of the Independent in the UK, and winding up here. Really appreciate the time you're taking to talk. Um, I wanted to ask about your favorite interviewees. Who are some of the favorite interviews that you've done and why? Um, can, can we go sort of out, outside soccer here as well? We can. Okay. Well, uh, one of the, I mean, the, the one that, that springs to mind um, while I try and think of a footballer uh, <laughs> is, is, is uh, Mark Cavendish, the, the cyclist who, mm-hmm. who won, won the world championship in 2011. Uh, so I, I've interviewed him a couple of, couple of years later and, and the, one of the reasons i really enjoyed that is because mark cavendish has a, he's kind of got a reputation for being a little bit snippy mm-hmm. with reporters especially those who feel he feels that aren't worthy of his time he's he's kind of a big kid in a way uh but also like a really really intelligent young man even uh, even though he's he doesn't say a huge amount or he often doesn't say a huge amount that's interesting if you sort of get into if you get into his his head a little a little bit mm-hmm. he will actually say some incredibly interesting stuff and, and what i what i discovered I, I can't remember how i discovered this was that he's really into puzzles mm-hmm. um he's he's incredibly into things like sudoku all these sort of you know the japanese puzzles that you get in the newspaper mm-hmm. and he had like, loads of them on his ipad and we just got talking about that <laughs> uh and and through that i sort of discovered that the way he sees the last 250 meters of a bike sprint is very similar to the way it, it's almost like a puzzle so he feels where the wind's coming from. He feels where, you know, the, the, the camber of the road is. He sees where the trains are, are moving to the left and right of him. And he sort of picks his way through the melee in the same way that he'd solve a puzzle. And, and that, to me, was like a, a, a really interesting insight. So that's, that's what I quite enjoyed doing because, to be honest, that could have gone either way. And uh, I, I, thought, I was quite pleased that, um, you know, that, that went quite well. Um, in, terms of, like, in terms of footballers, I... I think I recently did one with. I mean, I, I, there's a, there may be a theme developing here. I recently did one with Trent Alexander-Arnold, mm-hmm. at, um, the Liverpool player, and and his kind of his love of chess. Hmm. Um, and and again, this is this is what I was you know talking about earlier about undercovered angles to quite popular athletes and yeah. teams. Um, Trent Alexander-Arnold's really into chess, and like a few months ago, he played the world champion Magnus Carlsen in some. It was kind of this publicity, uh, you know, event, right. and he, he played Magnus Carlsen, the world champion, and, and lost. But talking to him afterwards, it was really interesting to to see how he saw the game of chess and how that helped him approach the game of football. And you know, that 
that's the sort of insight that you, you often don't get from footballers. Uh, he's a really, really intelligent young man, Alexander Arnold. And uh, a lot of the time with footballers, you kind of get platitudes and there's very little you can do about it. So when you get somebody who, who can speak intelligently and open up, that, that's a, it's a really gratifying thing. Fantastic. Um, yeah, uh, I'm a big fan of, of anybody who comes to an interview sort of willing to to reveal something about themselves that shows what they're about. And sometimes you have to steer them there a little bit, and sometimes it doesn't work. But I'm always fascinated by the process of interviewing, um, and, and it sounds like you are too. Um, yeah, well, I'm, I'm terrible at it. You're very good, <laughs> but... but... I mean, I mean, look at your book. You, you seem to be pretty good at it. So, so once once we're done here, if you if you could stay on the line and I'll pick your brain for a bit. I wanted to wind up with a question that I usually ask athletes, but I'm going to ask you as well, uh, yes. since you are a relatively young guy. You've got a lot of your career ahead of you. Uh, what would you like to do in your career? Oh gosh, um, about sort of five or six years ago, I had a really glib uh, answer to this question, which was to kind of exhaust uh exhaust the sporting world you know move into kind of general writing and and, and column writing and feature writing uh build a big enough profile for myself and, and eventually launch a bid to be mayor of london um that is that's not that's not on the bucket list anymore. <laughs> uh, um i i suppose uh th- i've been incredibly lucky in in my career in that like very early on in my career the london olympics came along and i, and I covered that and then there was the, there was a world cup in brazil and and and, and having the opportunity to cover so many different sports is kind of taking me all over the world. So in terms of like bucket list items, it's it's not really so much about what I'd like to cover anymore. I, I suppose it's more about I'd, I'd just like to I'd, I'd just like to keep writing nice things and not not necessarily just you know covering things in a in a really sort of mundane way, which I think a lot of a lot of sports writing does tend to towards the you know, headers and volleys, he said, she said, you know, this kind of stuff. Um, good writing has not only the you know, opportunity to, to to change people's minds, but also open people's minds. And I know that, that sounds a little bit like a hallmark sentiment, but what, what we do with the, the platform that we're very fortunate to have is, is speak to people. We can could, we could, we could go into people's phones and, and devices and their living rooms and kind of give them a little window on 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 the world and whether it's things like race things like sexism or even you know the the simple joys of you know a third division game in the middle of nowhere i think that it's there's something really quite there's something really quite noble about about that being able to to go to an event and saying actually you know what this is this is what it was like to be there and i'm very i'm very pleased to be able to convey that to you and and so i don't know if that's an answer but I'll just, uh, yeah, that, that's what I'd like to keep doing for for a while yet. It's a great answer. We're uh, we're pretty privileged to be able to to do what we do, and uh, yeah, I'm in my forties, but uh, I don't take it for granted. It is pretty clear that you don't either. Um, Jonathan Liu, he's the chief sports writer for the Independent in the UK. You can find him on Twitter at Jonathan Liu L I E W rhymes with view. Jonathan, thanks for joining the show. Thank you so much. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Planet Football Podcast. I'd like to thank Jonathan Liu, as well as everyone at Cadence 13 and Sports Illustrated who supports this podcast. 
Just a quick reminder, it's a huge help if you subscribe to, rate, and review the podcast. It helps people find us. And check out the 30-minute Planet Football video show hosted by me and Luis Miguel Echegaray on SITV. That's available on SI.TV, Amazon Channels, and FuboTV. See you next time.